You know, if the pastor busts out one of his old seminary textbooks, The Story of Christianity, Volume 2, by Justo L. Gonzalez, well, just hang on, right? The words of Martin Luther, I felt that I had been born anew and that the gates of heaven had been opened. The whole of Scripture gained a new meaning, and from that point on, the phrase, the justice of God no longer filled me with hatred, but rather became unspeakably sweet by virtue of a great love. Let's pray together. God, our Father, as we look back into the history of our Christian faith, and as we consider systematically doctrines of our Christian faith, we pray that as always when we open your word and when we come together to study, that you would speak to us by your Holy Spirit. We thank you, Father, for your sovereignty that you ordained circumstances in such a way and gifted and called men and women in such ways that they, by virtue of their obedience to you, could take our faith to new places and give us a heritage that looks clearly to the Bible and not to church tradition. Father, we ask your blessing now as we study. It's in Jesus' name. And everybody said... Amen. 500 years ago on October 31st, 1517, Martin Luther nailed 95 theses on the Wittenberg church door. And that's what brings us together today. The Protestant Reformation of the 16th century changed Christianity forever. That's a categorical statement, but I don't think you can argue it if you look back. Roused to action by the corruption of the Catholic Church, the abuses they saw of that Roman Catholic Church in the time, there were visionary pastors, theologians, and leaders like Martin Luther, John Calvin, and Philip Melanchthon that spearheaded this revolution in Christianity. They transformed Christianity and eventually led to the emergence of what is the Protestant Church. Brothers and sisters, we are Protestant. Any church that is not Catholic is Protestant. And we're called Protestant because we were protesting, we, our spiritual forefathers 500 years ago, the, the, I don't know what's the right word to use, we were protesting against the practices of the Catholic Church. And they're called the Reformation because there were these that sought to reform those practices. They didn't necessarily want to start new churches or new denominations, but they wanted to reform the Catholic Church from the inside out. The Reformers were guided by the conviction that the church of their day had drifted away from the essential original teachings of Christianity, especially in regard to the teaching about salvation. How sin can be forgiven through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ and our receipt of eternal life through Him. So the Reformation as a whole sought to reorient Christianity on that original message of Jesus Christ crucified and what we found in the early church. So you've got a couple questions on the top of your outline. The first one is this. What was the state of the 16th century Catholic church? Well, 
the first thing you need to understand is at that time, in the 16th century, there were two major branches of the church. There was the Orthodox Church, or Eastern Church, that had split off about a thousand years before, and those we still have today, Russian Orthodox, Greek Orthodox, fill-in-the-blank Orthodox, right? And then there was the Catholic Church, Catholic meaning universal in Latin, and so it was the Roman Catholic Church. The problem was that the Roman Catholic Church, by virtue of their theology and their power, that the church and state had become intermingled, and that those in religious power, popes, cardinals, bishops, and priests, abused that power in secular means in the way that they were controlling all those around them. Because think about it. If you could threaten someone with their eternal salvation versus their eternal damnation, they pretty much can do whatever you want if they believe you, right? And this is, in a crass and short way, what they were doing. Pope Leo X had grown his own power, and he'd grown it by the influence of others, and Pope Leo X was maybe one of the worst popes out of a long line of popes that had uh, abused their power. And what was going on was the sale of indulgences. Now, what's an indulgence? An indulgence, and I mean, find this in Scripture, right? But that's how far away from Scripture they were, was this idea that you, by giving some money, giving some property to the Catholic Church, your local church, or to the church as a whole, could pay for your sins. Or even if someone died and it was known that they didn't live a good life and that they were in purgatory, again, find purgatory in Scripture, that if you gave enough money, you could buy them out of purgatory. I know we listen to these things on the other side of the Protestant Reformation and with the understanding we have as evangelicals as well, and we think, how crazy is that? But think about what was going on at the time. If the only scripture available was in Latin, and you didn't speak Latin, and the priest who you trusted to be a trustworthy person because the church put their faith in him and because the way he conducted himself said, this is what scripture says, so you have to believe it, you're pretty much stuck, aren't you? Part of the Protestant Reformation was the translation of scripture from Greek, New Testament, Hebrew and a little bit Aramaic in the Old Testament into the languages of the people so that any person with some education and the ability to read could read Scripture for themselves. It's amazing how when that happened, the Catholic Church even rebelled against that because they didn't want common people to know how to read Scripture. It could be said that they didn't trust common people to read Scripture because they had right motives in any case. I was talking to Chris Dejabay this morning, and I said, you know, I almost asked you to put up a picture of the Basilica of St. Peter, the Pope's church in Rome, right? You've seen the Pope come to the window, and all the people are down in the massive square under there. Did you know that that church was paid for by the sale of indulgences in these years that Martin Luther and the Protestant reformers were at work? 
And so what would happen was this. The Pope would basically deputize agents and, um, you know, trying to gain some favor of different uh, civil authorities in, er- in areas. And so in Germany, it was Albert Brandenburg. And this guy already had control of two Episcopal sees. So he had a lot of authority. So he was a civil authority, a prince, if you will. But he had also gotten church authority. And he hired a guy named John Tetzal. And Tetzal then had an army of preachers that would go around to the uh, local German cities, towns, and churches. And they announced such things as this, that if you would buy one of their indulgences, you would be cleaner coming out of baptism than Adam was before the fall. And then there's this cliche type saying that I know it's in English and it rings and has a liter- or it has a alliteration in it and it was originally said in German but this was what it says it said that and of those who had passed away when they you know went to purgatory one coin in the offer in the coffer rings a soul from purgatory springs i mean literally if you drop the right amount of money into the collection plate that your loved one could go to heaven So these sort of things were going on, and it was misrepresenting biblical theology. But more than that, in Germany in particular, where Luther was born and raised and was a proud German citizen, were fleecing the German people in order to build up the church in Rome. So your next question is, who was Martin Luther and why is he so influential? There's a lot of myths out there about Luther, and I'll just, by a couple quick statements, say... He was erudite. He was studious. I mean, he was one smart guy. But unfortunately, he was a little bit ill-mannered and uncouth. He could even be crude at times. He was sincere in his faith. He was passionate, but it could lead him to be offensive and even vulgar in the expression of his faith. He used exaggeration to underline his points. And, uh, you know, he was not a perfect man. He was a sinner, that's for sure. But his impact is felt throughout the ages, not just because we have churches that have the name Luther in them with an Anne on the end, but as a matter of timing. The state of the Catholic Church, grown so corrupt at the time, the rising tide in response of that of Protestantism and Reformation theology, the advent of the printing press that allowed the words of any one person like the 95 Theses to be disseminated more rapidly and broadly than ever before, and even a growing tide of German nationalism, where the Germans then in the 16th century were saying, the way the church is treating us is not right. They didn't know all the theology, but they knew that people were taking advantage of them in the name of Jesus. Born in 1483 in Eisleben, Germany, Martin Luther's father was a miner, then eventually an owner of refineries. In 1505, Luther joined a monastery in Erfurt. And why he did that was that there had been an occasion about two years previous where he was caught in a terrible thunderstorm. So terrible, he thought he might lose his life. And clinging uh, to his own life, he prayed a prayer to a Catholic saint, St. Anne, and said, if you save me, I'll give my life to serve the church. So because of his promise, because of his concern for his own salvation, and his acute sense of his own sinfulness, Luther went to become a priest. Now, we need to understand that he wasn't, as a priest, and a licentious man or an immoral man, but he was terribly harsh on himself. 
He was horrified that he might forget some sin. He was so caught up in the Catholic means of confession that you have to confess to a priest and the priest has to say the right things in prayer in order to get your sins forgiven that he was uh, the very act of penance giving his confession and then doing whatever the priest said to absolve his sins made it even worse. Yet through these years, by 1512, he received a doctorate in theology. And he confessed to his confessor, who was also his supervisor there at the seminary, of all his problems and all his fears. And the confessor took an amazing step. Rather than saying, nope, buddy, you got to go back to school. You didn't pass the test here. Or we're going to lock you away in some library to translate something like that. The confessor took a chance on him. And this is one of those things where looking back in Christian history, we would say is a God moment. The confessor said, I'm going to appoint you as a lecturer at a university and to be a parish priest. Because I believe as you study scripture in order to lecture and as you teach scripture in order to apply it to people's lives, that the Holy Spirit will help you to work out your own salvation. Guess what? It happened just like that. As Luther began to teach through the Bible, he understood it as never before. Keep in mind, he already had a doctorate in theology. He already read Greek and Hebrew and Latin and German, right? This was a very smart man. But studying it in order to teach it to his small congregation, in order to teach it to the students that he had, his life was changed. So that by the age of 32 and 1515, when he was teaching through at the university and preaching through to his church, Romans, you had this instance in which I read uh, his quote. As he read through Romans chapter 1 and studied through Romans chapter 1 in the original Greek, he found out that the justice of God doesn't refer to, or as he had been taught, to the punishment of sinners, rather God's character. And that as God... uh, Well, let me read it. It means rather that justice of righteousness of righteousness is not their own, but God's. The righteousness of God is that which is given to those who live by faith. And it's given not because they are righteous or that they fulfill the demands of divine justice, but simply because God wishes to give it. Luther discovered grace. And it was in his discovery of grace that his life was changed. Soon thereafter, looking at the state of the Catholic Church and how it was affecting his native Germany, but also looking at the way other professors were teaching theology at the university and living it out in their churches, he wrote 97 theses. And these 97 theses he distributed all handwritten to his other professors. And it went over with a major dud. People were like, well, we're not concerned about these things. They were all happy teaching the way they were teaching, preaching the way they were preaching, and so on and so forth. And almost as an afterthought, a few months later, again looking at the condition of the church and the state, he wrote a different list. I don't know what he had with 90 plus things to write down, but again, he was a very smart man. The 95 Theses. 
And the 95 theses he took and hammered on the Wittenberg church door and All Hallowed's Eve, October 31st, so that when everybody came to worship on All Saints' Day, November 1st, they would all see posted on the door, written in their native German, these 95 theses, many of which explained things or pointed to things that all of them would agree with anyhow. Luther even argued such things that if the Pope or his agents had the ability to spring souls from hell, why couldn't they do it out of love like Jesus did, rather than you have to pay for it like the church was asking? So you can read the 95 Theses. There's many ways you can study about Luther. Um, Eric Metaxas' book, Martin Luther, is a newer one that's written that's scholarly, but also tells the background of the situation in time going on in Luther himself that I would commend to you. But what happened after those 95 theses, it was like the shot heard round the world. It's not too far from where Luther had nailed those things to the church door was the first printing press. And of course, if you're trying to promote your technology of the printing press, what a better way to do it than get some salacious piece of something that everybody wants to read. And more people will want to buy your printing presses because they see, hey, we can make money this way. So I don't know if it was purely because of theological motives or capitalist motives that the folks that had the first printing presses began to print Luther's 95 Theses and it spread like wildfire. Luther wasn't the first reformer, but it was because of God's sovereignty and time that his message went out. I can't take much time to tell you what happened from that point. He was confronted time and again by representatives from the Catholic Church, asked to recant, asked to consider. Finally, at the Diet of Worms in 1521, as a 38-year-old, he was told, recant or die. He asked for an evening to consider it. The next morning, he came back and he responded very lengthy, but basically three answers. One thing he said, much of the theology that I have taught in the time since he wrote the 95 Theses in, uh, you know, in 1517 to 1521, we would all agree on. I can't recant that, he said, because I would be recanting something you believe as well to the person who are telling him to. The second point he made was that the tyranny and the injustice that the German people were living under at the hand of the Roman Catholic Church, he said, I can't recant that either. I'm a German and these things are not right. And the third thing he says that was that he attacked certain individuals or certain doctrinal points, maybe too harshly, but that was between him and his opponents, not between him and the church. So he didn't really say he wouldn't recant it. As the diet, that is, that um, gathering of princes and nobles, were deciding what to do with him, Luther slipped away. And he spent almost a decade hidden away at the Wartburg Castle by Frederick the Wise. During that time, he translated the Bible from Hebrew, and, or excuse me, from Latin to German. And then he got many followers, even lieutenants, Karlstad and Malachten, and they began to practice in that church the tenets of Reformation theology. And the rest is history. Now, because this is a history lesson and because we, I want us to move to Scripture, we are going to move, and that's to your next major point. That's about the five solas. So I hate to cap off Luther's life so quickly, but I'm looking at my watch going, you know, I really need to be done in the next 20 minutes or less. And there are five different points of theology here, each with three scriptures, so let's move along. Amen?
Amen. The five solas are Latin phrases or slogans that emerged from the Reformation to summarize the Reformers' theological uh, convictions. And I've got to give props to Dr. Justin Holcomb, a Reformed theological professor who wrote a great article that I said, yes, this is the way I can preach this on Reformation Sunday. So these solas, as you're going to see them today, weren't articulated this way until the 20th century. The first three were three that all the reformers talked about. But it wasn't until the 18th century that uh, was added the, uh, uh, the fourth one and then the fifth one even in the last century here. They were most typically articulated previously as this, Scripture over tradition, faith over works, and grace over merit. If you want to write that down. Scripture over tradition. Remember, the Catholic Church had said, this is the way you're going to do it. The Reformers said, "Um, that's not in Scripture. So Scripture over tradition was the first. The second one was faith over works, because the Roman Catholic Church said, you have to do all these things in order to be saved. And the Reformers said, "Um, that's not in Scripture. And then the third one was grace over merit. The Catholic Church had taught that when you do these things, you earn the merit. And the Reformers said, "Um, that's not in Scripture. You may know some Catholic friends that even today you would feel like, and they would feel like, their works, their tradition, and the merit their works earn them, earns them salvation. Now, if you press them, a Catholic priest, as I've talked to, or Catholic friends that I've talked to, will say, yeah, it's by grace. And I'll say, then, why do you have all these obligations? And if you don't do these obligations, you could lose your salvation. Then they kind of backpedal. I'm not trying to be a smarty pants or anything. I'm just saying, friends, let's go back to what the Bible says, not what the church says. I was never so surprised at Catholic doctrine is when I did that study three years ago about the role of women in the church. And part of that study for my doctoral class was to look at what different denominations taught, and one was to look at what the Roman Catholic Church taught. So when I looked at what we as Southern Baptists taught about the role of women in the church, here was a statement of man and Scripture, 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 backing it up. Here was a statement of man and Scripture, Scripture, backing it up, and so on and so forth. But when I looked at what the Roman Catholic Church taught about the role of women in the church, here was a statement of men relying on another statement of men, relying on another statement of men, relying on another statement of men, and they all sound really Christianese, but I couldn't find a scripture reference anywhere. Because it was this cardinal citing this bishop, citing this council, citing this pope, and down and down and down it went. I think with almost any issue in the Catholic Church, even today, you'll find that. There certainly are believers in Jesus who have been saved by grace through faith in the Catholic Church, and I'm glad they're there. But like I say, it's just harder to get to heaven from the Catholic Church because they don't teach the Bible. They teach Catholicism. So I don't mean to condemn anybody or be harsh. I'm just stating that's my concern. So when we come to the five solas, we're reminded again why we need to come back to the Bible. The five solas, and that should say, of the Protestant Reformation. The Protestant Reformation. Remember, they were protesting to reform the church, hence the names, right? So the first one is sola scriptura. Sola scriptura. Number one is sola scriptura. Sola scriptura. So it's like scripture with an A on the end because it's Latin. And it means scripture alone. The scriptures are our ultimate and trustworthy authority for the faith we practice. That 
doesn't mean that the Bible is the only place that truth is found. The Reformers were not saying that the church can't state things correctly and we should do away with all the things that the church read, but they were saying that Scripture is the ultimate basis of our theology, not the words of men. And you even, I hope, feel that same way. That, yeah, you come to church and you listen to me and you go to Sunday school and you listen to a Sunday school teacher, you listen to radio teachers, you read things, but you say, okay, these words of Bible teachers are good, but these words of Bible teachers are not the authority. Scripture is the authority. Amen? And if you ever find me preaching something that you don't believe is in Scripture, we need to talk, friends. You need to help hold me accountable because I can certainly be in error. I'm fallible. Can I get an amen on that? If you don't know me, yeah, if you do know me, you agree to that. The Bible gives us everything we need for our theology. All 66 books of the Bible are inspired by the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit helps us, that same Holy Spirit helps us know how to live and apply that Scripture. It's our highest authority. So now, you got your Bibles ready? Let's go. Romans chapter 15, verse 4, you got it written down there. The Bible alone is our highest authority. Romans chapter 15, verse 4. And uh, I hate to have to fly through here so quickly, but I'm giving you some touchstone verses for these doctrinal principles, the five solas, right? What does it say there? For everything that was written in the past was written to teach us, so that through the endurance and encouragement of Scripture, we might have hope. Remember, biblical hope isn't a wish or dream, it's reality. It's faith in what is to come because we believe the person who's in charge of what is to come. And so why do we have Scripture? So we can be taught, so that we can believe that God is who He says He is. Second Timothy 3, 16 and 17, so if you're in Romans. And friends, I, I hope you take the time to turn to these and mark these and think about these, even though I'm flying through them. Second Timothy three sixteen and 17 tells us that all Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Remember that word thoroughly means absolutely, positively, completely, without anything left. So the Bible testifying of itself says that it alone will help you know how to live your life. Yes, you still need good teachers. Yes, you still want good preachers, you want to read books, you want to listen to podcasts, but it all comes back to Scripture and the authority of Scripture inspired by the Holy Spirit. And so then, if you're in 2 Timothy, turn over to 2 Peter. Go a few pages to your right to 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 20 and 21. Peter writes there, Did I get a wrong reference? No, I'm looking in chapter 2. Excuse me. No wonder it looked wrong. Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation. For prophecy never had its origin in the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. We use this Scripture and this Reformation principle to remind us that even though Scripture is the words of men, Scripture is different than other words of men. Scripture is inspired by the Holy Spirit, and it's proved itself out over time. So the first 
principle of the Reformation is sola scriptura, scripture alone. The second principle, sola fide. Sola fide, faith alone. Faith alone, sola fide, faith alone. That we are saved solely through faith in Christ Jesus because of God's grace and in Christ's merit alone, not because of any merit or anything we have done. God grants salvation not because of our good things, but in spite of our sins. As humans, we've inherited from Adam a sin nature. We're enslaved to sin, but God, because He loved us, provided Jesus to save us from our sins, and we are made alive in Christ. That subpoint there says we are saved through faith alone in Jesus Christ. We are saved through faith alone in Jesus Christ. Now, just write down, it's not on your outline, James 2, 14 through 17. James 2, 14 through 17, because this was and still is the major argument of the Catholic Church. And the Catholic Church, lifting James out of the context of the rest of the New Testament, says, but you've got to have works. And like we should do with any other scripture that we seek to build a theology of, we put it back down in the entirety of the New Testament and look at every other scripture in the New Testament that talks about grace and faith and works and salvation. And when we do that, we see that there's a balance from what Paul taught to what James taught, and that it is by grace through faith, and because you are saved, you have works. You don't work in order to be saved. That's the difference. We're saved through faith alone. Go back in Habakkuk. So if uh, you're looking back in the Old Testament then, Habakkuk, you're like, well, where does that come from? Well, we're talking about Habakkuk because he's cited by the New Testament writers. And Habakkuk 2.4 says, See, he is puffed up. His desires are not upright, but the righteous will live by his faith. The righteous will live by faith. Turn with me to Ephesians. So back to the New Testament. You've heard this one before. I've quoted it. I've preached about it. You should have it memorized. Ephesians 2, 8, 9. And from my New International Version from 1984, here's what it says. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. By grace, through faith, we are saved. Sola fide, that touches on our next one. And you guys know John 3.16, right? That God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son that whoever believes in Him, not whoever have works in Him, but whoever believes in Him, has faith in Him, will be saved. Listen to how J.I. Packer states this sola fide in the next one as it uh, applies. Our third one on your outline is sola gratia. Sola gratia, grace alone. Packer gives me our transition. He says, The doctrine of free justification by faith alone, which became the storm center of so much controversy during the Reformation period, is so often regarded as the heart of the Reformer's theology, but it is not accurate. So he's saying sola fide is not the heart of it. Pay attention. 
The truth is that their thinking was really centered upon the contention of Paul, echoed by Augustine and others, that the sinner's entire salvation by, is by free and sovereign grace alone. And that the doctrine of justification by faith was important to them because it safeguarded the principles of sovereign grace. You see, faith and grace go hand in hand. And it was grace that the reformers were seeking to teach. Therefore, faith was needed to buttress their teaching. The sovereignty of grace found expression in their thinking at a more profound level, still in the doctrine of monogenistic regeneration. We won't go into the theology there. But sola gratia, grace alone. That God graciously preserves us and keeps us is what it means. That even when we are faithless to Him, He is faithful to us. It is His grace. We can only stand before Him in His grace. As He mercifully attributes attributes grace to us through the righteousness of Jesus. That Jesus' life of perfect righteousness is counted as ours. So that sola fide and sola gratia go together hand in hand. Your substatement there is 3.1. It'll be on the screen is that we are saved by the grace of God alone. We're saved by the grace of God alone, that it is unmerited, undeserved favor. You go back in the Old Testament to Jeremiah and Jeremiah 17, 9, and it says that the heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? We are desperately wicked. You may not so condemn yourself and so worry over your sins as Martin Luther did before his conversion. But if you're honest with yourself, you would confess that you know that there is wickedness and sinfulness that lurks within you. And isn't it just like that, that, you know, you're going along and you're like, man, I'm having a great day serving Jesus. And then something happens to push one of your buttons and you're just, and this ugliness and nastiness and sinfulness comes out of you. And like, where did that come from? Because you're a sinner and you still need grace. Romans chapter 3, verse 10 and 11 Remember, it was in the book of Romans that Luther's transformation took place. He was already an accomplished theologian. But as he studied Romans, it was there that grace and faith came together for him. Listen to what it says in Romans 3, 10, 11. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. On our own, we're not righteous. There is no one who understands, no one who seeks God. That on our own, we're not even motivated to seek God. It is the grace of God that compels us to seek Him. That He woos us to Himself. And you've got Ephesians 2.8 reference again. It's by grace through faith. So those first three, sola fide, or sola scriptura, sola fide, and sola gratia. By the 20th century, two more were added. And that's the fourth one for you. We'll start with sola Christus, Christ alone. Sola Christus, Christ alone, that God had given his ultimate revelation of himself by sending Jesus. Colossians 1.15 tells us that. 
And it was only through God's gracious self-revelation in Jesus that we came to know what salvation would be and life transformation could look like, that God is holy and all humans are sinners and sinful. That neither religious ritual or good works could mediate between us and God. That there was no other way to bridge the gap between us and God than a perfect, sinless sacrifice. Christ alone. So your sub-point there is, is that Jesus Christ alone is our Lord, Savior, and King. Jesus Christ alone is our Lord, Savior, and King. Only Christ excludes the priestly class as necessary for sacraments. That's why sola Christus came about. It's a statement that says we do not need a priest to offer a sacrifice on our behalf. That all of us, using the terms of the Reformation, are, have a priesthood of believers. That because you have Christ in you and you have the Holy Spirit in you, you can pray to God directly. You don't need someone to intercede. Let's look at these scriptures here. Turn with me to Colossians. I hope, hope you'll join me there. This one you need to lay your eyes on. This one is rich, and I hate just reading it uh, so quickly. But Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 20, it's one of these massive Pauline statements that's loaded. So I'll try to read it slow, so that as you read and the Holy Spirit speaks. Speaking of Jesus, says that He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by Him all things were created. Things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authority, all things were created by Him and for Him. So you got that. Jesus made everything. He is before all things, and in Him all things held together. And He is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from the, among the dead, so that in everything He might have supremacy. So Jesus is the head of everything supreme above everything. Verse 19, For God was pleased to have all His fullness dwell in Him. Did you hear that? All of God is in Jesus. Verse 20, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. With all the authority of God within him, Christ reconciled us to God. He made us right. He settled the account of our sinfulness, that our sin was an indebtedness against God. But Jesus reconciles, makes that account right, and pays our debt. Colossians 1, 15 through 20. Sola Christus. Turn over to Hebrews. So a few pages to your right there to get to Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 4. And keep in mind the book of Hebrews was written to uh, Hebrew people, uh, you know, those that were Jewish people that were believers to Teach them, okay, here's what you need to know about being a Christian. And here's some things you perchance have wrong. So it dwells on who Jesus is as the great high priest. And listen to what it says here in Hebrews 4, 14 and 15. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has gone through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but we have one who is tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. Sin. Sola Christus, that Jesus is the great high priest, and he can be our um, 
pay the penalty for our sin because he was sinless. You're still in Hebrews. Look at chapter 7, verse 23 through 25. Now there have been many of those priests since death prevented them from continuing in office. But because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he is able to save completely to the uttermost, absolutely perfectly, those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. My little phrase I use again and again, no matter who you are, no matter what you've done, no matter what you've done, been done to you, no matter where you've been, Jesus will save you completely. It's right there in Scripture. Thanks be to God. Sola Christus. Let's get our fifth and final point. Fifth and final point is soli Deo Gloria. To the glory of God alone. Glory belongs to God alone. God's glory is the central motivation of salvation. It's the central motivation of creation. That our, our lives should be in order to give God glory. The Westminster Catechism says it succinctly and perfectly and so profoundly. That the chief purpose of the human life is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. That our Glory ought to be that. 5.1 on the screen there is that we live for the glory of God alone. We live for the glory of God alone, that He is all sufficient and He created us to worship Him. If you come back over to John chapter 15, verse 5, He talks about our relationship with Him and how we will see that glory. He says, I am the vine, Jesus said, and you are the branches. If a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If you do not see the glory of God in your life, you need to ask yourself, Am I abiding in Christ? Do I have a relationship? with him as such that the glory can be shown. Come back a few pages to your right to Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3 and verse 27. When then is the boasting? It's excluded on what principle? On that of observing the law? No, but on that of faith. Our goal is to bring glory to God. 1 Corinthians 10.31 a few more pages to your right, 1 Corinthians 10.31. Paul summarizing an argument that started up in verse 14, actually the beginning of the chapter. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. So friends, we don't say the name Luther today. Or celebrate this Reformation Sunday in 500 years from the date that he nailed those theses to the church door. Because Martin Luther decided there needed to be a Protestant Reformation. But rather, because the time was right, Martin Luther and other reformers fulfilled their God-given mission to reorient the church to the Bible alone, faith alone, grace alone, Christ alone. And God's glory alone. Let's pray. God our Father as we consider these lessons we've learned today. It's sobering. To think of. Where we were. As a church. And where we are as a church. 
and the fact that we still have many friends and neighbors and family members that are a part of the Catholic Church. So Father, not out of a sense of superiority in any way, but in full recognition of your grace in our lives, would we be humbled with what we know? Would we seek to confess our sins through the blood of Christ and by the Holy Spirit so that we might be pure to hear you and bring glory to you? And that we might humbly and graciously Engage our friends in discussion about what Scripture teaches and about what salvation is. That we might see the salvation of many souls for Christ. God, we ask to see your Spirit move through the members of our church and in our families, in our town and in our state, as there's a revival of folks turning to Jesus rather than the church for their assurance and salvation. God, we thank you for all we've learned today and the fact that we can come together and worship. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.